0: You know those people that, I feel like, like, probably 2015 YouTube, where you would start every single video off with the same intro? Oh, yeah. And it just made you feel like you were part of a cult? Mm-hmm. What, what would ours be? Hmm. Hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey! Yeah, it would definitely be oh, hey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we're
0: really good at the oh, hey's. Yeah, that's smooth. We could start out with that. Okay. Oh, Hey! Hey! (laughs) Welcome back to the Greened Out Podcast. Yes, welcome back. It's been a while, but we are here to have a new episode. We are here to hopefully improve quality all the way around, but I'm Maddie. And I'm Tatiana. And we have a really fun episode for you guys today.
1: We are really pumped to be back. Um, We have a lot of really good ideas for this podcast, and we're excited to get back into things. Um, I think it's been since April- was the last time that we uh, put out an episode, but we are getting pumped for this semester. I mean, it's already the middle of the semester, but we're pumped to start this podcast again. Yeah. Listen, listen, everybody. To create your own podcast is so much work,
0: and to, like, run everything on your own. Like, people have script writers, they have production managers, they have people that look up information for them, and we're just two burnt-out college girls trying to do our best, so... Hopefully, you guys can
1: see that and, like, be there with us on our journey. hmm Yeah. Totally agree. Um, yeah. We also want to make this podcast a little more chill, kind of bring out our personalities a little bit more as far as, like, not talk as much about ourselves, but uh, I'm trying to think of the right words. Like, talk about ourselves, but in, like, less of an animated way. Like, I, I feel like the last couple episodes... I kind of was more of an animated personality rather than myself. Yeah.
0: It's it's a new year, it's a new us. It's actually the same year, but we don't really want to bore you guys too much with the personal stuff. Last semester was rough. Summer a lot of things happened. We we're still going. We're trying our best, and everyone else is too, I think. Hopefully.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> yeah, okay. it's been a very interesting That's last semester ended Super strange mm-hmm. for me and Maddie. She ended up moving into a new house. I shipped off to Oregon. Um, I think Oregon was the last thing I talked about, possibly. I think I brought it up in one of the episodes. Uh, yeah, I went to Oregon. It was super cool. Absolutely loved it. Um, big fan of the Pacific Northwest. I think everyone on my social media has seen way too much of Oregon. Um, yeah, like Maddie said, the summer was real interesting we both um moved home for the summer she's in Co springs i'm in fort collins yeah so we just uh, navigated the summer working and chilling with our families which <laughs> love our families but it's definitely a different dynamic when you go from living alone in college to living back with your parents mm-hmm. and your siblings that is uh it's a constant pros and cons list, I would say. Constant, yes. No matter
0: where you are, though, like, there's going to be good things and bad things and things that you miss and things that you're happy to be away from. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Speaking of being away from things, I took a whole summer off from being on my phone, which was, like, super helpful for me because last semester and the semester before, I was constantly on my electronic devices, so it was really cool to take a break from social media and of enjoy the time i had with people in person more and then obviously i'm back on my phone so that was probably the biggest thing life-changing thing that happened for me mm-hmm. <laughs> me take, getting my phone taken away by myself <laughs> literally from its own purposes yeah
1: oh yeah that's a big mm-hmm. that's definitely a good way to relax and do your own thing and disconnect so this semester is yes. kind of it's kind of like me and Maddie's. Uh, last major semester at CMU, as far as like working with organizations and you know taking classes. Um, Maddie graduates next semester, so you know she'll be going into internships and portfolios and all of that good mass comm stuff that you do as a senior. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I think I mentioned this earlier in previous episodes that I'm heading to Japan to study abroad. But it was approved finally. Yes, it so was exciting. approved. Very exciting. Um, so I'll be shipping off in uh, the end of March actually yeah end of March I'll go to Japan Um, so next semester I'm just working and hanging out Um, so yeah that's what that's what we're up to this semester kind of just finishing it out Mm -hmm. some might say
0: yeah I think that was a really cute little wrap-up and update about what's been going on and where we're going but as far as this episode goes for you guys we have a bunch of different things that we're going to talk about For our main event, we have an interview with Ben DiNardo, who is an environmental science graduate from CMU, and he talked to us about nuclear energy and the practicality of it, especially in the Western Slope, and we got to really deep dive into that. And then we're also going to have our fashion bit, like usual, where we talk about H&M.
1: And our product of the week is going to be natural deodorant. I... I know that in past episodes, I've talked about how, you know, fast fashion is so bad for the environment and no one should, you know, you should focus on thrifting. And I am the worst offender when it comes to this. I love H&M and Forever 21. I hate that I love them, but I love them. And I buy all of my shit there. I know I'm the worst and I shouldn't have a sustainability podcast because I don't even follow my own rules. I'm currently wearing uh, two items of their clothing. And I feel like the worst person, but we're going to really go into it and talk about um, them on a sustainable level and then talk about them on a, like a labor and like human rights level, because it is very different.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. I think ever since I learned in my systems thinking class this semester about the triple bottom line, like framework within accounting and within businesses... Um, which basically it focuses on people, planet, and profit equally. I think it's so crucial for all businesses to kind of be examined through that way. Recently, H&M, they put out environmental goals. So, Tat, if you want to tell us more about that, we can look at the planet first within the Triple P framework.
1: Yeah, so um, I think it was back in May or sometime around the end of the springtime going into the summer, Um, H&M started with this whole new sustainable clothing line and sustainable denim um, and then talked about like they've released this entire campaign about how they're changing their brand, how they just want to become more sustainable, more transparent. Um, And, you know, looking at it from an environmental standpoint, it's awesome. It's 100% I'm on board. It looks like they're trying to become less of a fast fashion brand and more of like a serious environmentally conscious company it looks like one of their goals is to have all of their clothes be at least 30 percent recycled by 2025 and then maddie do you want to go into talking about the life cycle assessment because when you go onto h&m's page and you go through their sustainability campaign um, one of the things they talk about is the life cycle assessment and maddie knows quite a bit about that because of her systems thinking class Mm
0: -hmm. yeah so basically life cycle assessment is a way to look at a system and look at it from the beginning to the end. So, it looks at the raw materials and the energy and the costs that come with that along with like economic systems, feedback loops like that are reinforcing or just like feedback loops within a system. And so, it allows you to look at data and get a number for your sustainability, if that makes sense. You look at multiple parts of the processes within a system. So, like within H&M's production but with life cycle assessment you can't include labor or services costs and you usually have to focus on specific impacts on the environment that your system is creating and for H&M they were focusing on water energy and co2 impacts within their life assessment and I thought it was interesting that they're focusing on transparency which is the most important thing you should do within life cycle assessments and within anything you talk about in the environment, you should understand the whole picture before you make changes. And with the Fashion Transparent Index, H&M was actually named the most sustainable brand in 2020, which is an exciting move for big companies to take that step towards more environmentally conscious and more triple P choices. So always thinking about people in the planet uh, along with profit.
1: hmm. So when you look at H&M's, like I said, H&M has a campaign on their website. And when you go to that, they have a bunch of different articles, a bunch of different links. And one of the, one of the pages that they have is about transparency, and it follows the Fashion Transparent Index. Basically, with transparency, they just want all of their customers to know where their clothes are coming from, um, from the very raw materials that they're using to make them, all the way to the final product that they make. And they have a bunch of different things involved with that. Like uh, the chemicals restriction list on their website, it says that they were one of the first large brands to kind of adopt that and use that. And then another good thing that that they're doing to become more sustainable is not use plastic packaging. And that goes along with transparency just because they want their customers to know how their packages are getting to them and what material they're using to transport them. So they're not using any plastic in their stores. They're only using paper bags and then they have these, oh, they're reusable bags that are made of organic cotton and recycled polyester, which I think is really cool and I'm a big fan. The only thing that they do use plastic for is the online orders and they are planning to end that by 2022 and only use paper packaging. So they're partnering with this transportation company. I am going to butcher it if I say it, but it's M-A-E-R-S-K for those that are interested in looking into that further and it's a transportation company that invented a carbon neutral ocean product that is a biofuel blend that replaces fossil fuels and reduces emissions from ocean shipping so they're working on being more sustainable as far as their transportation and just all around being a more sustainable brand
0: and just by forming those partnerships with organizations like the one that tat spelled out and other environmentally conscious products by branching out and focusing on that, I think that they're going to do a lot of good for the environment and they have a decent amount of manpower to actually make a difference because like the big corporations, like if you change different leverage points within how their systems work, then you see a pretty big improvement. But along with everything that they are doing for the environment, we also wanted to examine what they're doing on a social level and kind of look at the ethics of everything because like i mentioned earlier with life cycle assessment you can't really look at services or labor you can't compute that so we did our own research and found out i would say very disappointing things about
1: how the operation works coming from like a consumer standpoint i when i heard about their new sustainable campaign that they were running um i got really excited because i was like okay i'm gonna feel less like a piece of shit for buying h&m clothes because i always beat myself up about like the clothing that i buy because i know it's not good to buy fast fashion i know it but they just have such cute shit and so i was like oh this is awesome like i can you know not feel so terrible about buying their clothes and then today me and maddie did some more research into how they treat their what would be supply workers yeah supply workers um and we kind of dug deeper into that and i was like oh my god now I feel like even worse of a person buying H&M clothes. So let's uh, let's dive into that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: into yeah. the ethics. Yeah.
0: So as a major clothing brand, of course, H&M has a lot of their production facilities overseas because sadly the minimum wage isn't high there and they could get away with a lot of questionable labor
1: tactics. So to touch on what we researched where H&M has like quite a few supply facilities. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is in Eastern Asia and Eastern Europe, where like Maddie said, wages are lower and they can kind of get away with more stuff. To be specific, Bangladesh, Bulgaria, Turkey, India, Cambodia, China are just a few of the places where we researched some really negative work environments. Um, So going into that, back in 2018, it looks like H&M pledged uh, to pay 850,000 workers a living wage by the end of 2018. And they did not go through with that. They failed. And I think that even now, 2021, they still have not met that requirement or -hmm. met that promise. Yeah, they're kind of scooping it under the rug and hoping that workers forget about the situation. Yeah, they're kind of hoping that workers and the general public forget that H&M promised that and H&M was working on that. They're trying to just kind of erase those people from society's memory true true
0: but more specifically when you look at the wages in these countries overseas in india and turkey workers were paid only a third of the established living wage and then it it gets worse it continues to not be great for these workers but in cambodia they are paid less than half of what a living wage is and in bulgaria which is a major h&m supplier these workers are paid less than 10% of the living wage. And this kind of puts them in terrible circumstances where they have to take or where they have to do overtime. And that leads to more mistakes and it leads to bad things happening on the job because these workers aren't respected or appreciated.
1: So it looks like H&M makes about $2.6 billion in profit each year. And still those supply workers, they have to work crazy overtime. Um, We read one interview that talked about workers working from 8 a.m. to 4 a.m. the next day and how that causes a lot of malnutrition, fatigue, even fainting. It looks like that's like an everyday occurrence in a lot of these factories overseas, uh, which is just terrible to hear about. And one specific story talked about how people are getting fired because they can't work anymore just because of the exhaustion and like the just horrible conditions that these people are working in. So reading that as an H&M consumer and a f- like, like I said, fast fashion consumer, I was like, oh, yes, they're being more sustainable. But no, their human rights is super flawed, super off. It's like they're trying to draw your attention away from their, you know, human rights violations by attracting you with, ooh, you know, we're, we're supporting climate change. We're environmentally conscious. We're, you know, look the other direction. And that's pretty, it's pretty F to me.
0: What is the term? Is it green marketing where companies specifically focus on what they're doing environmentally and they're like, oh, we want to be fully transparent with this when it comes to like our materials and our production processes. But really they're keeping out super important parts of sustainability, which is how workers are being treated and how this affects people along with the planet. And when you treat your workers right and you give them a living wage and you give them reasonable work hours, you're going to see productivity boost and you're going to be more sustainable in
1: the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to me that it's ironic that H&M has this huge campaign on their website and, you know, are advertising this huge sustainability campaign and talking all about transparency. In I'm taking a public relations class. I'm not sure if anyone listening is in mass comm but one of the professors perez he has us do a lot of projects on different brands and how they handle certain pr situations uh, anyways and i talked about h&m and their sustainable clothing line and transparency was like the main thing i talked about in that but there if they were truly transparent then they would talk about the, the labor they would talk about the workers they would give you the full picture and like maddie said they're just green marketing and trying to distract us and not being actually ethical Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah at the end of
0: the day if you are a business you need to enforce that triple bottom line you know if you're not focusing on every aspect of what your system does and how it impacts the environment then you're not being sustainable and when they like market it that way it's super disappointing because they want you to feel better about buying their products when the working conditions and labor laws and everything else that's involved in it aren't discussed Mm -hmm. so H&M what's up with that
1: yeah agreed. it definitely definitely changes my outlook I you're still gonna go there whenever (laughs) (laughs) this is the worst part of my personality (laughs) one of the worst things about me (laughs) is that I I just love clothing and I love fashion so much (laughs) but then I think about all the people and other countries who were fainting at work Mm -hmm. and I'm like I don't want to support that true so it definitely gives me a definitely like my my outlook has changed a lot I should have looked into this a long time ago I just kind of I you know I am I'm like a regular consumer where I just turn my eye to what's happening you know what the actual brand is doing because i'm like ooh, cute clothes for 20 bucks you know your brain releases endorphins when you see a sale at yeah.
0: least that's what i was always taught by my mom <laughs> but yeah. oh definitely they yeah. definitely they get you because you think you're getting a good deal and it's sustainable and it's like never they're profiting so much off of that and so many people are suffering because of these working conditions so we just want everyone to be a little more conscious about what they're consuming and what the brands are actually doing behind the scenes because you could say transparency but we're we're really gonna bring on the transparency here yeah speaking about growing and learning and everything Mm -hmm. one thing that i have not figured out how to make sustainable is deodorant and i've tried so many like natural deodorants i think that they're all great do they work for my pits Mm, debatable But Tat has a deodorant that she is recently using, and it's very interesting. So tell us more about it.
1: Recently, I kind of did some research into um, aluminum in products, and I'm trying to switch all of my products over to organic. Um, I try to eat organic. I try to use all organic products, products without like parabens and artificial dyes and, you know, chemicals and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Just be more environmentally conscious and like conscious of my health. Um, So I changed to a natural deodorant because I heard that I think, I think Dove has an aluminum free deodorant now, but I know that some of their, their deodorants had aluminum in them. Um, And then, oh gosh, what's the other really popular deodorant brand? Oh, it's Degree. Yes. Yes. Degree. They have aluminum in their deodorant. And I was using Degree for a really long time um, because I heard that using deodorant after you shave kind of helps with preventing razor burn. Um, So that's, you know, what I was using deodorant for. Um, because Tat doesn't sweat, you guys. Oh yes, so I should mention that. The least sweaty woman I could ever know. Well, I sweat, I just don't smell. Yeah. And I don't know if anyone's like, gonna believe that. When I refer to
0: sweat, I'm referring to the stink that the comes stink, along. The stink, yes. But you don't have it.
1: I don't. Um, I strictly only wear deodorant to help with razor burn and it doesn't even help that much, so I kind of stopped using it. But yeah, I do not. I think I used deodorant probably months ago. <laughs> Just to, you know, because I have like this like green pear and like honey deodorant and it just kind of spices things up a little bit. It's purely just so I kind of like smell a little bit better, even though I don't smell bad in the first place. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, true. Nothing wrong with a little coating on the pits, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Mm -hmm. But definitely pay attention to what kind of packaging is coming in these deodorant cans and stay away from aluminum
1: because I've also heard...
0: Not the best things about that
1: hmm yeah um, so I've been using native which I'm sure a lot of you have heard about native um, I know there's a lot of other brands that uh, out there that do natural deodorants um, some stronger than others I just use a native because I like we talked about don't really have to deal with smell so native just helps me with you know using an organic deodorant that I can trust so I would yeah I would definitely look into the products you're using um, whether it's hair body face whatever makeup um, and just look to see like what stuff is being used in it. See if it's organic, see if it's aluminum free, paraben free, you know, just see what kind of stuff is going into it. Cause I know that, um, as compared to other countries, the U S has less strict regulations on the chemicals that they can put in products and in as, our food too, which yes. is really fun and fresh, but yeah. carry on. I've just become more conscious of like what's going into my body because, you know, I want to live as long as I can physically live. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 112 would be ideal. <laughs>
0: You are definitely going to grow, grow, and grow. I, I hope so. I can envision you as an old woman 100%. <laughs> it's just the best thank soul. You. Yes, thank you. <laughs> but is there anything else you would like to add about our deodorant conversation?
1: Focus on the products you buy. Yeah, and
0: yeah get rid of the nasty packaging yeah. that stays in landfills forever. Mm-hmm.
1: Thanks. Oh, that's the other thing about Native. Just a little before we're done with this product conversation. Mm-hmm. They use... I know some of them, some of their products are plastic, um, but they have come out with paperboard, paperboard packaging to use for deodorant. So another plus about Native. And I know there's some other products that also use uh, paperboard or like recycled materials to put their products in. So yeah, definitely look out for that. I know there's a lot of stuff online and also in stores. So really happy that everyone's kind of getting on the uh, organic no aluminum trend Mm -hmm. hopefully it's not a trend hopefully it stays around for the rest of our lives (laughs) yeah agreed agreed yeah
0: but now we're going to transition into debatably the coolest part of our episode today our interview with ben denardo who like i mentioned graduated from cmu a while back and he plans to work in the nuclear energy field so he talks to us about how nuclear energy works and specifically on the western slope and yeah it's really interesting so we hope you enjoy and we'll come back at the end to kind of discuss everything and then of course say goodbye to you guys so here is
1: the interview one thing i did want to mention before we cut to the interview in the background you guys are going to hear some clicking and that's because we did the interview in the one of the study rooms in the library and our other friend was working on our homework at that time so you're going to hear some clicking you're going to hear some typing on the computer just ignore that we're sorry here's the interview Enjoy. Thank you for joining us, Ben. How are you today? I'm doing great.
0: Thank you so much. So for all of the people that are listening that aren't really sure about what nuclear energy is, can you give us a little bit of information about how nuclear energy works?
2: For a nuclear power plant, it's a really complicated process to do a really simple thing. Just like uh, most of our power plants, um, how it actually generates electricity is by spinning a turbine, and to do that, it produces steam. And in order to produce steam, it uses energy trapped billions of years ago in the um, in the throes of supernovas, and we're releasing that energy uh, to, to to boil some water. Which is it's kind of kind of funny, but it's it's really it's really remarkable because um, nuclear energy is so energy dense that one nuclear fuel pellet, about the size of my last digit on my pinky finger. Um, contains about the same amount of energy as hundred and fifty barrels of oil and it, it used in today's reactors so it, it's it's the, the energy density of nuclear energy is, is one of the really cool things about it because there's just so much energy stored in a little spot and another thing that people often are a little bit confused about with nuclear energy is how exactly like the fuel works and how the waste works so basically Um, very simply these fuel pellets go in giant metal tubes and those tubes are basically to put it simply they're just put in water and that will cause the water to boil after they've been in the reactor for an amount of time that varies um, basically they remove the tubes and then let them cool off and it's really remarkable coming from an environmental science background to see how, um, how the waste from this is actually very well handled when you compare it to other, other examples.
0: That brings in question of risk perception within the public and what kind of goes on with that. So, what are some reservations and safety concerns surrounding nuclear energy?
2: So. Reality, I think a lot of people's fears around nuclear energy actually boil down to a fear of nuclear weapons, which is actually very understandable. Um, but the problem with nuclear energy is back uh, is the same people who are champion nuclear energy, saying it's safe, effective, and like the, the the way forward for energy, are also the same people saying that um, above ground nuclear testing is perfectly safe and healthy. The same people that says. That the, the uranium mining that the um, that the government was sponsoring was a, it was a good boom uh, for the economy and those sorts of things. So th- there's a lot of distrust around there because there is a very serious legacy of um, environmental damage um, and lying and um, mis- misguiding the public from the nuclear weapons perspective, and A lot of people kind of collated those uh, and thought that that nuclear energy is is as scary as nuclear weapons, when in in
1: reality that's just not uh, borne out by the facts. I've heard that Grand Junction has history of nuclear energy in the area and uranium mining. Um, Could you give us a little more information on that? Yeah.
2: So Grand Junction is actually in a really interesting location. Um, but before uh, we actually discovered uranium uh, b- b- correction, before we discovered um, the atomic fission process um, there was already uranium mining in the area, but that's not because they wanted the uranium, it's actually because they wanted radium, which is a byproduct of um, which is a byproduct of radio the radioactive decay of uranium um, because that had a lot of different uses is it was a very new material and a new element that people were really excited to use so the grand junction area was already had some history of that because um, there was uranium mining in order to obtain radium so when uh during the manhattan project and afterwards when the united states government was trying to locate domestic sources of uranium the southwest area and grand junction kind of specifically was uh, selected because they already had that history. So they knew that it was here, and they had just had to figure out how to best extract the the, the uranium. This created uh, basically a uranium rush, just like gold rushes of the past. And Colorado, as well as many other western states, are still dealing with a very hit serious legacy of environmental mismanagement as a result of those gold rushes. Um, a couple years ago, there was the gold... Uh, I believe it was the gold... Uh, creek um incident where the where thousands of gallons of wastewater were held back um and were then flooded into the san juan river system and that is a result of uh, our legacy of gold mining so uranium mining is um more toxic in many respects than other minings because uranium itself is uh is more toxic you really don't want to get it inside your body Because that's when the radiation actually starts to be a problem but radium is safe enough that you could hold it in your hand and it'd be fine but you really don't want to get it in your body and the problem with these mining conditions is a lot of it was underground and poorly ventilated and that led to very high incidence of lung cancer and such and it it, it's a really bad uh, chapter because the United States government was providing guaranteed uh, guaranteed money for people who would find uranium deposits and so it was really the government sponsored um, attack on these people because in many cases uh, it turns out there were large uranium deposits on um, native lands and those, uh, those people were encouraged to go and exploit those resources because they could make some money off of it but in reality they did They ended up uh, doing a serious uh, legacy of damage to the local environment as well as uh, potentially the health of the workers who were involved. I haven't even mentioned the coolest thing. The coolest thing is that that spent nuclear fuel from our existing reactors, we've only used less than – or around 1 to 2 percent of the potential energy in there. Since the 1950s, we have known how to recycle effectively – this nuclear uh, spent nuclear fuel from our existing reactors, and we can actually harness the other 99% of the energy from this. And what that means in practice is we could power the entire United States for a, more than a century using nothing but the spent nuclear fuel from our existing reactors. The, the thing about it is, is because you're fully utilizing, um, the 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 nuclear fuel you're basically what we're doing now is we're basically we're throwing a log in the fire waiting for the bark to burn off and then we're taking it out of the fire and saying it's done mm. so what we, this would be doing is you're putting it back in there and you're burning it all the way until it's the, the most reduced ash possible and what that does is it does make the 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 nuclear waste much more radioactive Um, but as we've learned making it much more radioactive means it's dangerous for much less time in in fact um, if you uh, use this full cycle fuel process um, instead of taking tens of thousands of years for the spent nuclear fuel um, the radiation in it to decay to the level that is in natural uranium which is generally the standard that is uh, used um, it it could take ten uh, like ten thousand years or more, depending on how stringent you want to be, um, to have that waste uh, uh, for uh, that to decay back to background. But if you um, fully recycle it, it only takes about three hundred years. And while it is difficult for us to demonstrate something will be safe for ten thousand years it is much easier for us to demonstrate that we can make this safe for 300 years. And that, that's some of the really exciting stuff. It turns out nuclear energy is recyclable. Turns out it's also renewable because um, all around the world, our, our rivers are pumping small quantities of um, uranium uh, salts into our oceans every year. And there are actually billions of tons of dissolved uranium in the world's oceans. And we can actually, we don't have to do these, um, our conventional mining things anymore because we can just, there are methods already, though they are not, uh, currently, they're not cost competitive against existing mining methods, but we do know how to extract uranium from seawater, which means you can just keep getting it back from the sea and, um, the more you pull out of that, the more will get dissolved from the ocean floor. So it's it's pretty renewable
1: mm-hmm. in terms of
2: a resource.
1: Do you see any of the negative effects uh, from that from the past uranium mining? Do you see any of that affecting Grand Junction today?
2: Well, I mean, there's still uranium under a lot of the the, the history is a lot of buildings in the valley um, took mill tailings. From the, the climax uranium mill and use them uh, as construction fill for a variety of different projects, and there are still um, buildings with uh, tailings in Grand Junction. Whether it is they are whether removing those tailings would actually be uh, pose a larger risk than leaving them as is, or they are currently not in a position where they are at risk of um, people being there. Um, or exposure to animals or the environment so there there is definitely still a legacy of that and the legacy of distrust is something that um, people in the nuclear community really haven't fully internalized as a whole is recognizing why people are, are so wary of what of um, what we're trying to do and also just how best we can help other people accomplish their goals and in order to do that we have to recognize the the errors and the horrible management that has been done in the past and do our best to try to um make those right so we can actually move forward The stuff at the grain junction disposal site is uh, low level it, it, it's not even considered low-level radioactive waste um there's it's uh i believe classified as residual radioactive material but basically um there's a lot of different categories but this is this stuff is basically the stuff that it's dangerous to you because it poses a hazard due to radon um which is which is very dangerous because radon is one of the leading causes of uh lung cancer and um uh these materials will basically emit radon so having them near you is 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 not great um and then if you want to compare that to what comes out of a nuclear power plant, the spent nuclear fuel from a nuclear power plant. I believe I mentioned that earlier that basically there are these fuel rods that go into the nuclear power plant uh, and then they generate electricity Well, they generate heat. And then once they're used, they are very, very radioactive. Uh, radioactivity is kind of weird to understand because um, most chemical pollutants, most of the stuff that I dealt with when I was um, – uh, the, the stuff I was learning about in my ma- mental science degree, that stuff doesn't go away. Like Some of the organics might be decomposed, but if you have something like mercury or something there, it is going to be there forever. and It is just going to be mercury because that's how elements work. But the thing about radioactive decay is um, you can actually um, – it actually gets less dangerous the longer you just let it sit there. So when these rods come out of the reactor, they have these fission products in them, which are incredibly, incredibly radioactive. But because they're incredibly, incredibly radioactive, it means they aren't radioactive for all that long. So basically, uh, we put these fuel assemblies into um, spent fuel pools, which are basically just giant pools of water that you just keep cool and then that's basically it you basically just let them sit there for about five to ten years and after that they are not going to kill you instantly uh sort of thing because the, like radiation like there are different sorts of radiation a lot of the radiation we we experience radiation all the time in our everyday lives um from the soil from the air from everything radiation's everywhere but uh, the sort of radiation that comes in nuclear reactors is just a, a, a bit, a bit more. So you do need to be careful around this spent nuclear fuel. But what the, the, they do with it is basically once it's sat down for a while, they basically take the, the, the fuel bundles and they just encase it in cement. And then once they've encased it in cement, it is actually per- so, so safe that you could just walk next to it. It's perfectly fine. So, and then. So, our current solution for nuclear waste in the United States and for many countries is because there's no long term disposal site, the spent fuel is just stored of on site. And so you just have basically a parking lot somewhere with a couple dozen of these very, very large cement cylinders filled with spent nuclear fuel. This is pretty safe. I mean,. These cement cylinders are really, really heavy, and while I can't necessarily guarantee their safety for thousands of years, it seems fairly reasonable for the next 50 or 100 years. They're not really going anywhere. So the thing about nuclear waste is it's not necessarily it's, – it's not an urgent problem. There, there is no real urgency in it because it's not like there's any risk of it escaping into the environment at any stage in this process. Um, At every stage in the process, we know exactly where it is and we know exactly how much of it is, how – like the other thing about radiation is like with a chemical pollutant, um, you don't know what the concentration is or how dangerous that substance is. With radiation, you can actually tell from a distance exactly how scared you should be of something, which is something that many other chemicals – that just isn't the case for. Sorry, I kind of ramble on there for a little while.
1: No, you're fine. That was super interesting. I, uh, I've i heard a, a little bit about, um, well, the ur- uranium mining that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. I've heard briefly about it. Do you know how long that went on for?
2: The mining wasn't necessarily done in town, but basically what happened is people brought all of their ore to Grand Junction to the Climax uranium mill, um, which processed the ore. Um, the, the mill was really in operation from about 1950 or so until sometime in the early 70s when it was basically shutting down. Um, after that, um, the, um, some legislation, federal legislation was passed um, in I believe 19, in the 1980s um, called UmTrica, which is the uranium mill tailings Remediation Control Act. Um, and it, it provides uh, federal funds and resources to create um, disposal sites for uh, the legacy of this um, uranium mining in the United States. And Grand Junction uh, was chosen as a location to have a, um, a waste disposal cell, which is located about 13 miles or so south of um, Grand Junction. And uh, my capstone project was actually involved in looking at the, the closure of that site. Um, and it, it's really providing a lot of value to the community because it is uh, accepting waste from uh, public and private sources uh, for the, the radioactive mill tailings and other um, sorts of stuff that have occurred in the region. So um, it is scheduled to close, I believe, in now in 2032 or whenever it is filled um and it still has some room to be filled and it's a really good resource because if we didn't have it uh, we'd have to ship it ship waste much much further away at much much greater expense
0: definitely i think disposal in like you were talking about management and how the government handles everything that's a huge part of how the public perceives nuclear energy but for those that are like wary about such a thing what are the main bargaining points for nuclear energy
2: yeah so this is what I really like to talk about so I really came I came to this growing up as an environmental in a very environmental family going to sustainability fairs in Fort Collins every year and so that that mindset was really at home to me and the thing I started to realize is, the thing about solar panels and wind turbines is they require a lot of physical land area. And what many people don't realize is, for wind turbines, you need a like many thousand-ton cement foundation for each wind turbine in order to make sure it doesn't literally blow away like a giant uh, like a giant kite. Um, so I'm just unsure if the best way forward for the environment is to be building, is to be covering our grasslands and areas with thousands of tons of cement uh, anchors all over the place and then covering our beautiful deserts with solar panels. I mean it it seems like there should be a better way for us to uh, produce carbon free power without having to uh, basically farm our energy. And I mean, uh, there absolutely are many benefits for using solar and wind technologies. They're, they definitely have their applications, but that's just a huge environmental damage. That's That seems to be more environmentally damaging than many of the things people are afraid of nuclear doing, when in reality, nuclear energy um, has the smallest material footprint of any major power source, which means every power source requires mining and other... Uh, mater- ma- raw materials in order to produce whatever is generating the electricity. And um, the data shows that um, even including the cost of building the nuclear power plant itself, along with fuel and all of the other things, nuclear energy is more than 10 times, uh, requires like a factor of 10 or more less material to produce the same unit of energy as wind and solar. So it's really, when, when we look at trying to minimize our impact on the environment, um, nuclear energy, funnily enough, actually seems to have a smaller impact on the environment than um, traditional renewables do.
0: It's interesting to look at the emissions, and also, like you were talking about, the land that it takes up as well.
2: The, the real data is clear that nuclear energy provides orders of magnitude less than any Than gas coal or any other uh, fossil source so in reality for nuclear energy um the majority of its carbon footprint is the construction of the nuclear plant itself which is um, which requires a lot of concrete and steel both of which have large greenhouse gas um, impacts but once the plant is built it's uh operating impact is very near zero in terms of a global warming impact I mean, you could argue it emits water vapor, which is a greenhouse gas, but that's that seems pretty
0: minor. Changing subjects a little bit, we'd like to talk about job opportunities that nuclear energy brings.
2: There's actually a really good thing um, from the American Nuclear Society, just came out with a report, uh, that actually uh, looks at uh, the amount that uh, like nuclear coal oil Wind and solar jobs, and like which ones pay more, and it turns out nuclear energy um, jobs, on average, pay more than um, than renewable energy jobs, and they're really there are a wide variety of different jobs that you can get in a nuclear power plant, even uh, many that can uh, very well support a family off of simply just a high school education. You don't actually need uh, all of the technical knowledge because there are a lot of different uh, job opportunities in fields like security and other other plant maintenance um, operations that don't require as uh, high of a technical specification and um, so there really are a wide variety of really good well paying jobs that nuclear does offer like it or not about nuclear being expensive it does provide a lot of good construction jobs <laughs>
1: I was wondering, what future do you see for nuclear energy?
2: Yeah, so that's a really good question, and it's really exciting. Young people in the nu- who are excited about nuclear are uh, really wanting to bring tech people's attention to are these uh, new molten salt reactors and small modular reactors. So uh, molten salt reactors, if you've ever heard of thorium energy or something like that, or uh, thorium nuclear reactors, that's just basically a molten salt reactor. And salt reactors provide so many um, passive safety features and stuff um, that I, I don't think necessarily it's worth um, getting into the specifics here, but basically um, one of my favorite companies basically says they're trying to design a reactor that is prime minister proof, which means if the prime minister called up the reactor and ordered them to, to, to make it melt down or to, to make the reactor fail that they actually could not make the reactor release significant portions of radioactivity into the environment. It may be possible potentially to deal significant damage to the infrastructure of the reactor itself, but future incidents like Chernobyl and Fukushima are much, much less likely. And it's really, uh, it's really exciting because in addition to that, um, these small modular reactors are able to be built on factories and shipped um uh, uh, to their destination uh traditionally nuclear reactors are big huge things that are um built on site and each one is kind of like an artisan like it's like you're building a la- a lamborghini or a ferrari every time you're building one but we what these uh reactors what sorry the the um, small modular reactors SMRs um, do is they basically make a Model T Ford. They're like, okay, we're going to build a reactor that does this. It's really safe. It's really easy. We'll build it like this. You can put it on either the back of a train or the back of a semi-truck and ship it to where you need to go. And then you build all the infrastructure around it and then it's good to turn on. It often takes a very significant portion of time to construct a nuclear power plant, particularly in the, uh, the West that um, construction times have been uh, very high. But we have data that suggests that if you actually standardize designs and stuff like that, you could actually build reactors on a really, really
0: good pace. What should the takeaway be? Like, how could we get to a level where we also have like cheap and renewable energy?
2: Yeah, so there is some problems. Um, The the big problem right now is uh, the current regulatory environment. And I'm not saying that we Don't need nuclear regulations because of course we need nuclear regulations um but our current regulations weren't designed with many of these new generations of reactors in mind so the nuclear regulatory committee who governs uh what sort of reactors can be built and those sorts of things um, needs a process in order to license the new reactor and to demonstrate to the public and to everybody else that it's safe and effective the problem is, this process can be prohibitively expensive. It can cost billions of dollars just to get your design, um, just to get your design approved. Um, before you even take into account that you then have to build a demonstration reactor, which will likely met, net you no money because you have to you're demonstrating your technology, um, and then then after you have then invested tens of billions of dollars in the project then you can start building your reactors so that is the 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 real problem um, in the u.s is the current regulatory environment it's just it's it's very difficult um and the nuclear uh, the, the nrc is working to change this and um There is some signs that the Biden administration is um, supportive of nuclear energy looking forward, which is really important because as you mentioned, um, nuclear energy is the number one source of carbon free energy in the United States. It produces more carbon free energy than every other carbon free source of energy combined. Um, and, um, it recently surpassed, uh, coal production in the U S which is, which is really, which is really remarkable as well. So, um, we really need it going forward, but the problem is, is it's difficult to build new nuclear plants. And currently, there's only one nuclear plant uh, being built in the U.S. Uh, whereas we are at risk of many nuclear plants being shut down, mostly because they are they aren't cost competitive with natural gas. They can't they can't compete with natural gas because natural gas is just so insanely inexpensive.
0: It's definitely an, a lot to think about especially in regards to budget too but I'd like to talk to you about your personal future with nuclear energy and what plans you have now.
2: Yeah thanks so I um, I am really interested in trying to communicate with people trying to raise awareness uh, particularly with people in the environmental community about how necessary nuclear really is if we're going to go forward with going to a zero carbon future because that future is only possible if we use nuclear. The amount of nuclear we use is up for debate, and um, uh, but it's it, it is essential if we're going to achieve all of our goals. And for me, I am um, really excited because uh, I I have in the past had the opportunity um, in December of twenty nineteen. I was able to go to the United Nations um, Climate Conference uh, COP twenty five in madrid and it was really interesting to see all of the different people coming together for the common cause of working to address climate change and uh, it, it, it's really great to see everybody working towards that common goal so what my what my goal is for my future is to try to uh, to try to get involved more deeply in that to try to see how best i can um bring nuclear to the table how best i can uh make more people aware that this power source is there and then it, it really addresses just about everything uh all of the concerns that people have can be addressed um simply by doing um, research and reading and it's tough it really is tough um because it seems scary and it seems complicated but the reality is is um it's kind of like we made it complicated. Just like our education system makes math kind of scary to kids, um, even though if you if you get a good math teacher, you can be like, "Oh, this is so fun! I didn't realize how interesting this could be." Uh, so, so that's what nuclear energy needs to learn from, and that's what I'm hoping to to bring is a, 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 a hoping to excite new people about the future and the new possibilities.
1: I had my own uh, own opinions and thoughts on nuclear energy after hearing about you know Chernobyl and. Uh, HBO came out with a documentary about that, and so, you know, that gave me my own perspective on nuclear energy, but this has really taught me a lot more about modern nuclear energy and how different countries are utilizing that. Thank
2: you so much, and, and just a, just some quick comments. Um, pe- people do get scared about, like, Chernobyl was really, really awful. It, like, it was truly awful, um, but... People have made claims that billions of people are expected to die from Chernobyl, but that's that's simply not backed up by the, the facts. Um, the United Nations, um, uh, the, the 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 World Health uh, Federation, as well as the governments of um, the responsible co- the the regional countries um, Ukraine, Belarus, uh, the Russian Federation, um, they they put together a report and the the most conservative estimate that they were coming up with is at most no more than 4,000 people are expected to die from it which is pretty awful but when people are claiming things like millions of people are expected to die or this is going to be a huge impact for generations to come that that data is that 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 is just not borne out by the data and in fact Um, The exclusion zone around Chernobyl has actually become a hub of biodiversity simply because humans don't live there. It has, in effect, become Europe's third largest wildlife reserve. And um, large mammals from bison to uh, European wolves and a variety of different uh, species have, um, have come to the region simply because the human presence is so small there. And it turns out that the danger of radiation to them is less significant than the, it's more beneficial for them that to live in a radioactive environment to be than to live in the, uh, the presence of humans, which is um, sobering to think of. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to Fukushima, uh, even though the reactor accident was very severe, um, there are not expected to be any deaths as a result of the radiation from it but people get really scared when they look at pictures of Fukushima and pictures of the um, the area around there because they see all this devastation. But in reality, none of that was a result of the nuclear incident. It was all a result of absolutely jaw-dropping tsunami that, that even one of the most tsunami-prepared countries in the entire world was just not ready to handle. And, yeah, the real tragedy of it is the fear um, that it has caused this really much more dangerous than the radiation itself the data really suggests that even if you take the most conservative estimates the worst case scenario for the amount of deaths that nuclear energy has caused um uh the the continued operation of fossil fuels costs more lives every day than nuclear energy could can even the most conservative estimates uh would, would put nuclear energy's death toll at so it's you you really just have to put things in perspective and people people really want to get the perfect source. They want there to be a perfect solution that that addresses everything. I think it's the energy. But but in reality there is there's no there is nothing that's actually it doesn't actually fit all the boxes. There are there are costs associated with everything and you can't get anything that's that's actually perfect. So the in our search for perfection, we have missed out on, we're we're neglecting to choose the practical option um, to go forward, which which is unfortunately costing us as well. So basically it's just, nuclear energy, it's hard work. To get it right, you have to put in hard work to make sure it works right. But if you put in that hard work, it will pay it, it will pay off and if your listeners want to um learn more about nuclear energy from the th- for themselves um i highly recommend they check out the documentary pandora's promise which can be um seen on youtube it can be rented for just it's pretty cheap um or the documentary juice which i believe is available on amazon and several other services um It's really interesting to recognize how important energy is in the lives of just about everybody on this planet. And it helps you realize we need to try to help bring our energy resources, not just to help decarbonize the United States, but also to help uh, pull developing countries out of poverty. And giving them access to high quality energy is one of the fastest ways to do that
1: this entire episode has been very interesting. Um, Thank you so much for being on here and educating us and educating our viewers.
0: Yeah, we wish you the best in everything you do. Keep doing the thing with nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. Tat and I just wanted to do a real quick wrap-up about nuclear energy because nothing in environmental science is ever all good or all bad, so we just wanted to do a quick little summary of some pros and cons about nuclear energy. So, Of course, nuclear energy does not emit any CO2 emissions, which prevents 7% of global greenhouse gas emissions, and as of right now, nuclear energy provides more electricity than wind and solar energy, and of course, less environmental damage than coal, but some cons about nuclear energy remain that it is expensive, waste storage is also a question and being debated on and risk of accidents and public anxiety are some cons of nuclear energy so we're gonna have a little bit of a discussion on what we think about everything and again this is just our opinion so this is not a fact i can't really remember the name of the specific tribe that i wanted to talk about but there's this system of agroforestry that um, mayan people do in central america and it it's a relative it's like super sustainable and there's like three different stages that the forest can grow into and they're able to get yield and they're able to like burn down the forest and regrow it so it um has a really good life cycle within it but something that they kept in mind was they like to think seven generations down when it comes to making decisions with the environment and be, like when it comes to what they do and so I think that's a super important thing to keep with you your entire life is like thinking seven generations down, especially when it comes to sustainability. And so nuclear energy, it's intimidating when, because when you think about the storage of the nuclear waste and how that impacts people and it's also not a self-sustaining system and it's not able to like run on its own. It's dependent on humans and you know, humans make mistakes and also equipment malfunctions. So the public anxiety factor of
1: nuclear energy continues to get to me. When it comes to nuclear energy, I don't, I, I'm not a science person, really. I know I have a sustainability podcast, but I'm, you know, I'm mass comm for a reason. I don't know a whole bunch about nuclear energy. So he definitely gave me some insight. Like most people in the world, I watched Chernobyl when it came out like three or four years ago. And that was terrifying. That was like, oh my God. You know, nuclear energy is the absolute worst um, when I watch that. But then, you know, I have to think about like outside perspectives, you know, talking to Ben and then my, should I say boyfriend? Hmm. OK, yes. Your my partner, your my... significant other. <laughs> yeah. So my SO, significant other, is from Japan. He's an international student um, and he experienced Fukushima pretty firsthand. Um, he had a lot of family that was affected by it. He was re- relocated for a few months Um, Because of the nuclear waste and, you know, everything going around Japan at the time. So I know that his experience and his opinion on nuclear energy has definitely influenced me. As far as, like Maddie talked about, the public anxiety and the controversy associated with nuclear energy. I'd say my opinion is always changing and it's always adapting to, you know, the experiences that I have, the people that I talk to, the more information that I get. It's definitely interesting to learn more about that kind of energy and see the positive and negatives to it. Um, and I'm still I still obviously haven't you know like fully rounded my opinion on it, but I'm really glad that I now understand more of the pros as well as more of the cons, um, and have those outside factors affecting what I what I believe. Again, could not say thank you enough to Ben Denardo for coming
0: onto our podcast. It was super great talking about nuclear energy with him and getting a more rounded picture about the consequences pros cons all of it and we also had a super interesting conversation about h&m and fast fashion and all that goes into that sort of thing and a good old chat about natural deodorant so we hope you guys enjoyed this podcast we will be back for another episode and best for you guys always
1: yeah yeah thanks for being here love you guys bye